Now, good evening, and it's good to see you all here. Thank you for coming. We're going to turn uh, again to the book of Genesis. First of all, tonight, please, we're going to read in chapter 3. We're looking at the connections between God's glory in creation and God's glory in the church. And uh, we were thinking last evening about the way in which the principle of headship was uh, laid down by God in the very beginning of time and how that's reflected in a local assembly. So just before we move, uh, leave that subject to move on to the thought of the building, we're just going to read in Genesis chapter 3 the outcome of man's sin and sin coming into the world and uh, the Lord speaks first of all to the serpent and pronounces a curse upon him and then in verse 16 of Genesis chapter 3 verse 16 of Genesis chapter 3 Unto the woman God said, I will greatly multiply thy sorrow and thy conception. In sorrow thou shalt bring forth children, and thy desire shall be to thy husband, and he shall rule over thee. And unto Adam he said, Because thou hast hearkened unto the voice of thy wife, and hast eaten of the tree of which I commanded thee, saying, Thou shalt not eat of it. Cursed is the ground for thy sake. In sorrow shalt thou eat of it all the days of thy life. Thorns also and thistles shall it bring forth to thee, and thou shalt eat the herb of the field. In the sweat of thy face shalt thou eat bread, till thou return unto the ground. For out of it wast thou taken, for dust thou art, and unto dust shalt thou return. Well, we trust that God will bless this preliminary reading of his good word tonight. If you have been able to be here on previous evenings, and we've been grateful for all your attendance, you might remember that we saw in uh, the early chapters of Genesis here that there were three particular things that were prominent. Number one, we saw the order of things in chapter one, just the simple fact that almost every verse in that chapter begins with the little word, and, and, and. So God is a God of order. He's a God of process. And uh, he is a God who in Genesis chapter one was building one thing upon another. He didn't just speak and produce a finished, full world. He called the materials into being. He fashioned them. The psalmist says he set a compass upon the deep. That is, he actually shaped, as it were, the very globe with his hands. And there was a process going on, and God was building. And the process is described in chapter 1, and, and, and. Then in chapter 2, we were thinking particularly of the preparation of the body, Adam's body. The detail given to us of the fact that that body was fashioned out of the dust of the earth and how that God breathed into it the breath of life and man became a living soul. But then, God didn't fashion Eve in the same way. Uh, having paraded all the animal kingdom before Adam, and he looked at them, and he knew their characteristics, and he named them. The scripture then tells us that out of that animal kingdom, there wasn't one that was a suitable complement, a suitable partner uh, for Adam. And God said, it's not good for the man to dwell alone. So he caused a deep sleep to fall upon him. He took that rib out of his side, and from the side he made woman. We're going to think about that afresh, God willing, tomorrow night as we think particularly about the bride. But there it is, there's the word, the bride. So we have in chapter 1, God's building. We have in chapter 2, the body. And in 
chapter 2 as well, we have the bride. And so that's the order of things in the Ephesian epistle, which is speaking about the church in its entirety. We have God's building in chapter 2. We have the body he's preparing in chapter 4. And we have the bride in chapter 5. So there are very clear links between these uh, early lessons in Genesis and God's purpose for the church. Now, in the verses we've read together tonight, we're looking at a very sorry state of things. We've read together the pronouncements God made upon Eve and upon Adam. And uh, when we think of God's words to Eve, and we'll think a little more about them, particularly her sorrow in bringing forth children, thy desire shall be to thy husband, he shall rule over thee. What we're really reading there is that the whole point of and truth of the bride has been very spoiled by sin. The relationship was terribly spoiled. Then God speaks to Adam. And he said, now because you have listened to your wife instead of me, and because you've taken of the fruit that you ought not to have taken, cursed be the ground for thy sake. Not you are cursed, Adam, but the ground is cursed. And so if there is a spoiling of the bride through sin, in God's words to Eve, there's a spoiling of what God has built, the ground, the very order and infrastructure of the universe that he took such care to build in chapter 1 has been terribly spoiled by the intrusion of sin. And so the building is spoiled. But then Adam is told, henceforth you will get your bread by the sweat of your brow. You were made from dust, and you're going to return to dust. And the body was spoiled. So that's the state of things at the end of chapter 2. The three things that are prepared in chapters 1 and the early part of chapter 2 I should have said at the end of chapter 3, sorry. The things that are being prepared in chapters 1 and 2 are all terribly, terribly marred and spoiled at the end of chapter 3. The bride and the building and the body. So there's those three things again that the Ephesian epistle mentions. And uh, we did see last night that in connection with God's building, Ephesians chapter 2, that when God began to build the creation, the universe, the first thing he called into being, other than the uh, materials that he would use to fashion everything, the first thing God called into being was light. So with the thought of the building, there's the thought of light. And with the thought of the body is the thought of life. And with the bride is the principle of love. So light and life and love are seen in these three things and they are the very essence of who and what God is. God is life and he's light and he's love. So God has expressed himself and revealed himself and, and shown his glory through these things. And now it all lies in tatters at the end of chapter 3. And when we come into chapter 4, the chapter there is devoted to showing to us what the effect was upon man as a race. And Cain stands as an example of man after the flesh. The first man born into the world, the first man to inherit the sinful nature of his father, and Cain, after the flesh, stands in this chapter, chapter 4, as a graphic example of fallen man. There are three particular things told us about Cain. The first we're told about is how he perverted his belief. He came on occasions with his brother Abel to present offerings to God. He came in the God-ordained way because the sense of the passage, if you study it, I think you will find the sense of the passage is that what had once been the case suddenly changed, and now on this occasion, Cain decided he would no longer come in the God-appointed way. He would come his way. And God would now have to accept him on his grounds. And the writer to the Hebrews tells us what the outcome was. 
Uh, by faith, Abel offered a more excellent sacrifice than Cain. And God signaled his pleasure in the acceptance of that, I assume, by fire coming down from heaven and consuming it. That seemed to be the way in the Old Testament scriptures that God showed his pleasure in something. And fire from heaven would have come down from heaven, consumed Abel's offering, but Cain waited and waited and waited in vain. He had brought of the fruit of the ground, the thought of his own efforts. He is the father of world religion. For no matter what the name of any particular religion might be, they all boil down to the same thing. You either believe in a righteousness by faith, or you believe in a righteousness by works. And all religion is a righteousness by works. So Cain was the father of that, and it came out of disobedience to the revealed word of God. His father was disobedient to the word of God, and he is disobedient to the word of God. And when it became evident that God had accepted Abel's sacrifice and not his, then Cain, unable to reach out at God, reached out at the man who represented God, and he slew him. So the narrative changes in chapter 4 from Cain's belief to Cain's brother. He slays him, and God deals with him because of the slaying of his brother. And the pronouncement God made as he spoke to Cain was that as a result of him killing his brother, he must go out and be a fugitive and a vagabond. He must be a wanderer in the earth. And the scripture says Cain went out from the presence of the Lord, having been told that, and he simply refused to obey what God had said. He didn't wander. He wasn't a vagabond. He built a city a place of permanent settlement. If God told him he would wander, Cain said, no, I won't, and he built the first city ever recorded in Scripture. So from Genesis chapter 1 through to chapter 4, we have the whole sorry story of God's order overturned in so many ways, and man's original abode, which was in a garden, in fellowship with God, has now turned out to be a city and a man estranged from God. What a terrible, terrible fall. I've included these comments in chapter 4 with the comments at the end of chapter 3 for this reason. That chapter 4, out of all the things we could have been told about Cain, and remember, these 11 chapters are dealing with 2,000 years, so it's quite remarkable that the Spirit of God takes the incident of perhaps a day and devotes a chapter to it. And the reason why we've looked at them together is because at the end of chapter 3, God's building and the body and the bride that he had prepared was all ruined by sin. And the man who is the outcome of the first parents who are sinners, the first man born into the world, we're told about his belief system, we're told about his attitude to his brother, and we're told about what he built. Now that's very interesting, I find, because as I read in the New Testament scriptures, I find that my life as a believer down here my life since the Lord saved me is going to be reviewed one day. Very soon it's going to be reviewed. And we must all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. And when I read the three scriptures which particularly deal with the judgment seat of Christ, in 2 Corinthians 5, that which is particularly in view as I stand before the judgment seat of Christ is what was my belief system. Paul says in verse 7 of that chapter to the Corinthians, he says, for we walk by faith and not by sight. Do we? He's not talking about justification by faith. Every believer is justified by faith. 
He's talking now about how the believer lives their life after God has saved them. And are their values the values of this world? Is their horizon the horizon of this world? Are they content just to be saved and to live life as though they were ungodly? Or, as Paul says in that little bracketed verse, 2 Corinthians 5 verse 7, we walk by faith and not by sight. We're going to be assessed. We're going to be reviewed as to our belief system as believers. God has spoken to us as to how we should walk for him and live for him in this world. And every time I read something in the New Testament that cuts across my life, something that tells me how I ought to be living for God, sanctified and holy, and when something cuts across my life, I know it does, and I refuse to fall into line with it. I'm going in the way of Cain. That's not walking by faith. Faith, ultimately, is proven in its deeds. It's proven in its obedience. And the walk of faith is demonstrated by obedience to the will and the word of God. And the believer who knows to do one thing and does another is guilty of the sin of Cain. We are going to be assessed for it. When I come to Romans chapter 14, I read again about the judgment seat of Christ. But now that which is specifically in view is not my belief system, it's my attitude to my brother. Why do you set your brother at naught? Why do you judge your brother? And the thought is, you see, that that it's not to do with the sometimes necessary and perfectly scriptural requirement to judge matters when brethren are wrong. The Christian life is a disciplined life, and the local assembly is a disciplined place. And if believers act contrary to the word of God, then it's perfectly scriptural that they're brought to account. And overseeing brethren particularly are responsible for maintaining godly order in an assembly. It's not talking about judging of brethren in that sense. In the context, it's about, it's about the things which are of themselves of no particular consequence. There's no scriptural declaration about the thing, for or against. There's no principle involved, for or against. But simply on the basis of one's own prejudice and one's own desires, there is the idea of imposing upon others the things that please me. And that's what Paul is driving at. That's when he poses the question, who art thou that judgest thy brother? If there's a man who has a conscience about doing a particular thing on a particular day, and you don't, He's not to impose his views on you and you're not to impose yours on him. If there's no principle at stake and if there's no, um, uh, no breaking of a scripture for one way or the other. And yet, my dear brethren and sisters, there's been more assemblies of God's people spoiled and broken and divided over things like that than ever were broken and divided over doctrine. Forceful men, arrogant men, who decide that you either do it my way or you hit the highway. If you don't do it my way, you're doing it the wrong way. And Paul by the Spirit says, how dare you? Who art thou who would judge your brother? For we must all, the emphasis being on the fact that we must all individually stand before the judgment seat of Christ. And you might have a particular exercise, depending on your background, your culture, or anything else, you may have a particular feeling about not eating this, or eating that, or not going there, or not doing this, and, and these things we hold in conscience before the Lord. 
the scripture says, he that knoweth to do good and doeth it not is sinning. And the man who, who goes against his, his sensitive conscience is sinning. But what he does that might constitute a sin is not a sin if you do it. If you're doing it with an open conscience before the Lord. So it, it, we've all of us to get back to our Bibles and say now, the things that we think are right, wrong, or indifferent, can we justify that from Scripture? It's amazing how these kind of prejudices can get into the system. Into our system, I mean. I was speaking with my beloved Indian brethren and sisters over supper tonight uh, um, about one of the first times I came across Indian assemblies out in the Gulf. And uh, it gets pretty hot out there. So um, this was many years ago, and I, I was out there with my work. And the brethren had invited me to speak that night. Uh, they knew I was coming out, and they'd invited me to speak at their ministry meeting. Well, if I was going to speak at the ministry meeting, I was going to dress for a meeting. So I dressed pretty much as I am now, I guess. And the brethren met me in the uh, foyer of the hotel I was staying in, uh, nicely air-conditioned, and they took one look and they laughed. They said, Brother, you're going to melt. Well, I just drew myself up to my full height and said, Well, number one, I'm an Englishman, and number two, I'm a brother. So this is how you... This is how you have to dress when you preach. Well, they were right. I nearly melted. I mean, they had to meet in a room for non-Islamic faiths. It wasn't their own building. They just had to go to a building that was shared by all non-Islamic faiths. There was no air con. There was nothing like that at all. And yes, I melted. So the following evening, I was going to speak again. And the following evening, I went just dressed in some cotton slacks and a short-sleeved cotton shirt. And... Um, <coughs> Do you know, very honestly, the sensible part of my head told me that that was the obvious way to dress. But there was a very, very big part of me that felt I was betraying everything I'd been brought up with. Seriously. That's how I felt. And I realized then just how much these, these requirements of a system that are not actually requirements of the Bible, how much they can start to be absorbed. And you see, I, I confess to my shame, I would have been guilty in those early days of traveling abroad, of going to different assemblies, and seeing men and women do things in a way different from the way we did them at home. And immediately the hackles come up, they're doing it wrong. But they're not doing it wrong. Because when I look at it, as I can now, with a little more maturity perhaps, I realize that, that whereas in the Old Testament days, when divine service was all about the behavior of one family, of one tribe, of one nation, Israel, Levi, the house of Aaron. So divine service involved the house of Aaron. It, it involved the priesthood of Israel. And to those select men, there was given a pattern of things. See that thou make it according to the pattern that was shown thee in the mount, Moses was told. There was a pattern. The very word is, is sometimes used of the imprint in soft ground that might be left, for example, by the hoof of a horse. You know, that, that kind of clear imprint in the ground. An impression made uh, where you can see exactly what has been there. It's an imprint. It's a pattern. And those Old Testament men followed a pattern that they didn't understand. It was nothing but ritual, even for the godliest of priests of the family of Aaron. Not one of them understood why he stood at the altar. Other than that, other than that was what God wanted. And they went through the procedure, for perhaps in Leviticus chapter 1, they took a, a bullock and, and they very carefully, uh, after it had been slain, they laid it on the altar and they parted it and they put its head and its inwards and its legs and they went through all the procedures and 
They hadn't got the faintest clue what it was all about. It's just a ritual. It was a pattern. The priest didn't get up in the morning and say, well, it's my course that's on duty today and uh, there's going to be the evening and the morning sacrifice to look after. I wonder how we'll do it today. No, they didn't bring any changes. It was just the same. Day in, day out, feast in, feast out, year in, year out. They just went through it all. That's what a pattern is. Brethren, follow my thinking, please. There isn't a New Testament pattern today. There are principles today that intelligent Christians, enlightened by the Spirit of God, put into practice. Why? Because a pattern is fine when you've got one family of one tribe of one nation, but when, you, when you're going to have something that's got to work amongst every culture and every climate and every country of the world, you can't have a pattern. So there are principles of New Testament gathering which are put into practice in dignified ways differently in different parts of the world. And the fact that something is done differently in this assembly from the way it is in this assembly doesn't make this one right and that one wrong. It just means that there's two practical ways of observing the same principle. But there are certain things that don't change. Now, that we've been talking about the whole question of, uh, of headship yesterday uh, and of how the headship of Christ governs every assembly gathering. Ordinarily, the headship of the man is the sphere of responsibility in which we live, in your home. Some dear saints back in the UK, they have a little notice on the wall and it says, uh, Christ is the head of this house, the unseen guest at every meal and so forth. Very nice but wrong. Christ isn't the head of the house. The man is the head of the house. And he bears responsibility to God for that. So that when we have come as this evening, and we've come together uh, for the purpose of a scripturally convened gathering of God's people, and we've come together in the name of the Lord Jesus and gathered unto him, that as this meeting commenced, we moved from under the headship of man to the headship of Christ. And when, in the will of God, and if the Lord hasn't come, this meeting comes to a close, and it is closed in an orderly way, and we're all aware that the meeting has come to an end, we revert from the headship of Christ to the headship of the man. It happens every time we meet. And when an assembly is gathered together and Christ is head, then there are certain things that have to be in order, otherwise the whole thing's a waste of time. And the display of the principle of the headship of Christ is in the uncovered head of the man and the covered head of the woman. It's not difficult. You go to 1 Corinthians chapter 11, and in that chapter, three glories are seen. There is the glory of God, first mentioned. There is the glory of the man, and there is the glory of the woman. So if when the saints together, only the glory of God is to be seen, it follows you to cover the other two. So, I mean, that's not hard, is it? We want one glory out of three to be symbolically presented. It means we have to cover two. And so Paul teaches what those other glories are. The, uh, the woman is the glory of the man. What does that mean? Well, we saw that glory is really the outward display of something that is inwardly real and precious. It's the outward display of the thing. So in that, in the creatorial purpose of God, the woman came out of the man. She came from the man. She, ho she owes her origin to the man. And she is seen, therefore, as being the glory of the man. 
So then, if, as is the case in 1 Corinthians 11, man being made in the image of God represents the glory of God, it means that the man is to be uncovered, symbolically uncovered. His physical head is speaking about the spiritual head and it is to be uncovered so that God is glorified in the, in the company. But the woman is the glory of, glory of the man, so, so that has to be covered. The glory of the man isn't to be seen, so the woman has to be covered. And the way in which God has designed for the glory of the man to be covered is in the long hair of the woman. Her long hair covers the glory of the man. All right? Now listen, I'm, please, I'm not the one, don't blame me, I'm not the one who is talking about the long hair of the woman, and if you've got short hair and you're embarrassed by it, that's not my fault. You understand that? Just telling you what the Bible teaches, and that is that, that the, the glory of the man is the woman, and God has made a provision for her covering. He's given her long hair. But then he says the very long hair that the woman has introduces another glory. It's a glory to her. So that has to be covered as well. And that's why the woman then has an artificial covering. So the woman has two coverings. With her long hair, she's covering the glory of the man. And with the artificial covering, she's covering that glory given to her. Consequence, only the glory of God is seen symbolically when the saints are come together. Three glories of God, of man, and of woman. Two must be covered so that only the glory of God can be seen. Now, how that is done in different cultures... We have hats, we have berets, we have mantillas. In India, I love it when the saints have come together and as the meeting comes to order, almost as one, the dear sisters sweep the sari across the head. Or maybe the chuni, the sort of scarf that's worn with some of their clothing. It's a beautiful gesture. It's a move that simply says, as this company acknowledges they are now under the headship of Christ, so the head covering is put in place. But I've been amongst tribes in Burma where it's routine for the men to cover their heads. And so by the same token, when they all gather together, as they sit and as the meeting is brought to an order, so the men remove their coverings and the ladies cover their heads. And the whole thing symbolically is exactly as 1 Corinthians 11 teaches it should be. Meetings will be held in different ways. A dear brother I went to India with first back in the 1990s. He said to me one day on a train, he says, Brother, when we get to this place where we're going, the first thing you're going to have to do is teach them how to have a proper morning meeting. I said, oh, okay. What do you mean by that? Well, don't be ridiculous. You know what I mean by that. Teach them how to have a proper morning meeting. I said, well, what's improper about the way they do it? Well, he said, they spend all this time singing. I said, well, why is that then? Well, I don't know. He says, they just sing forever and ever. Well, then I found out that one of the reasons why some of these rural assemblies would sing maybe fully for an hour. There's two reasons, really. Number one, most of the folk were illiterate. Uh, The simple farming folks, so they haven't got clocks and watches and anyway, there's jobs to be done. So they'll come to meeting when they come to meeting. And they're dribbling in and draggling in for the next hour or so. But there's another reason. They're illiterate. They can't read. So dear men in years past took biblical truth and set it to song. And there's many of these dear folk getting saved and they get baptized and they're brought into the local assembly and their first exposure to biblical teaching is the singing of the saints. And so they're learning the word of God. Very, very different from what we do in the UK. Very, very different from what you do in Midland Park. Does it make you wrong and them right? Or vice versa? Of course it doesn't. But we have brethren who get strung out because 
I don't. Somebody gets up and reads from the Bible before we break bread. And oh, that's awful. We shouldn't do that. We shouldn't do that. Why shouldn't we do that? Perfectly content to lift a hymn book and sing all kinds of wrong doctrine. But we, we can't open the Bible and read the word of God? Oh, come on. In fact, as I read my Bible, I find that on the Lord's Day morning, if a company of sinners saved by God's grace and baptized, if that company of Christians gather together, the men with uncovered heads, the women with covered heads, and if all they did was give thanks for a loaf and a cup, partake of them and leave, they've done everything that the Bible requires of them. We've put all the extras on. No complaints. It's a wonderful time for us to concentrate on the Lord and to express our worship and so forth. Whether it's in hymns, whether it's in brethren reading appropriate scriptures. We've bolted everything else on and to what we have bolted on, we've then added a whole bunch of rules. And eventually said, well, if you don't do it this way, you're doing it the wrong way. So please, I'm not here to be provocative. I'm not here to be rebellious or anything like that. I hope you know that. There's only one thing I want to provoke. And I want to provoke thought. I want to provoke thought. I want us as Christians, Bible-believing Christians, to look at what we do and then go back to our Bibles and say, is this in accordance with the Word of God? What principle are we enacting here? Have we now some things you won't have a scripture for? It's not a rule book, not the New Testament, it's not a rule book. And it's just a paradox, it's part of our perverted thinking uh, in our fallen condition that on the one hand we hate rules and on the other we make them. And we've brought, been brought into a wonderful liberty. And yet, in that liberty, I want to feel free to do what I want, but I don't want you to do what you want. I mean, that's, it's just strange like that. So, so it's not a free-for-all. Clearly it's not a free-for-all. Everything in the local assembly is to be done decently and in order. That's the way that section of 1 Corinthians finishes, 1 Corinthians 14. Everything done decently and in order. Whose order? Not the brethren. Or this name, or that name, or any other. The order is divine order. Everything done decently and according to divine order. Now, if you've never studied your Bible to find out what that divine order is, then with deep respect, now's the time to start. To read your Bible and say, now, why do we do what we do? And if you don't understand why we do what we do, then go and speak to your elders and find out. But of course you don't go and say, why should we do this? That's the language of rebellion. But believers who go and say, genuinely, why do we do this? Uh, why don't we do it that way? Or could it be done this way? And so there isn't, there isn't an unbreakable pattern where everything has to be done this way or that. And, and therefore the building to move from the point of the headship of the body to the building process that Paul speaks about to the Ephesians and that he speaks about to the Corinthians. One of those things I have to answer for when I reach the judgment seat of Christ. Have I been guilty of judging my brethren unnecessarily? And what about the building that I'm doing in the local assembly. So the idea of the building, Ephesians chapter 2, is that God is preparing himself a temple. It's a dwelling place, but it's not just a dwelling place. It is a place, clearly, by definition, it's a place of worship. It's a place where God doesn't just dwell, but where he's revered and where he's honored and where his people come and pay him homage. And God's building that, 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 that building. And it's a holy temple. And uh, Paul says to the Ephesians, and you also are being builded into it as a holy habitation of God through the Spirit. So the local assembly is a place where God dwells. 
Each individual Christian is indwelt by the Holy Spirit. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, Paul says to them, do you not know, do you not understand that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit? He dwells within the individual. But then he poses a very similar question in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, but he's not now talking about the body, he's talking about the local assembly. And he says the Holy Spirit dwells there. Ye are temple of the Holy Spirit, and if any man destroy this, God will destroy him. So the Spirit of God dwells within me, and the Spirit of God dwells within the local assembly, and God dwells within the dispensational church, that holy temple that he's building for himself, a dwelling place with God. So to balance what I've just been saying about not judging individual brethren or companies of brethren because they happen to do things differently. Now, please, 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 I'm not talking about doctrinal differences. I'm not talking about doctrinal differences. I'm talking about companies, New Testament assemblies of God's people where some happen to do things in a different way from others. The question came up uh, over supper. What about music? Why don't we have music in local assemblies? The answer I gave was very simple. Well, there isn't a biblical prohibition. But just because things are lawful doesn't mean they're expedient, Paul says. So, if we just worried about the thin end of that proverbial wedge, if we make a prohibition where the Bible doesn't, we're adding to Scripture. What we should understand and believe and teach, is that every local assembly of Christians is autonomous. It answers through its overseers to the Lord Jesus himself. And nobody else. Nobody else. Do you know, if we simply practice that, instead of just saying we believe it, if we actually practice that, it would deliver us from a multitude of sins. It really would. That principle of autonomy And if there is a company of Christians, and as we say back home, they couldn't carry a tune if you put it in a bucket for them. You know, they're just a small company and there's none of them particularly able to sing very well. Now, if, if that little company of Christians decided they wanted an instrument to help support their singing, are they wrong? What, what scripture would you go to and say, brethren, you're wrong in doing that? But, you know, people do that. They'll say, oh, they've got that now. We'll have nothing to do with them. Sure, right. They don't exist. Come, brethren, that's very, very wrong. That's very, very wrong. They don't live unto us. They live unto the Lord. And if as an autonomous local assembly, they've decided that that would help them, they need it, we don't, so we don't have one and they do. What's the problem? Now, Fine. If they put up flashing lights and a 12-piece Caribbean steel band, there's, there's, there's something not right there. But we're not talking about that. We're not talking about these excesses. And we're not talking about people who, are, you know, companies are just deliberately going right off the rails and throwing overboard divine truth. We're not talking about that. We're just talking about autonomous companies of Christians. while we're on this kind of subject. Very practical, I hope. While we're on this kind of subject. There will be those who will stand in judgment of the proverbial company down the road because, um, well, we heard they received brother so-and-so, and we wouldn't. Judging your brethren. Or, you know, they had an issue there. Of course, they asked me not to say anything about it, but I trust you, so I'll tell you. Uh, and uh, the issue that they had, well, <clears throat> it's very serious, you know, and, 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 uh, uh, but, but, you know, what they should have done, and, and so it goes on. If only we believed in autonomy. So we have to think, right, the assembly where God has placed me, what are its principles? What, what, what are we responsible for? We're responsible for the 
building into the assembly. Now, we don't build the assembly. It is there. It's God's assembly, and he is the perfect one to maintain it. But he expects we, his people, to build with him. We're building into the assembly to, to maintain, to reinforce, to guard. And what we should be building in are the gold and the silver and the precious stones, those things that are mined from under the earth. They take the effort, they take the skill, they take the dedication. We go into the word of God, we mine these things, and we build them into the local assembly, and we're persuaded and convicted of the truth of the New Testament as to how Christians should meet. In many ways, it was kind of easier right back in the early days. Because if you lived in a place like Corinth, you didn't have to make your mind up where you were going to go. Uh, you had either been in one of the temples of the demons and the idols, or you'd been in the synagogue of the Jews, but then when God saved you, you couldn't go to either of those anymore. You were part of the church of God, which is in Corinth. There are only three things in Corinth. Idols, temples, a synagogue, and the local assembly of Christians. That's all it was. Now, my goodness, we've got gospel halls. Still looking for that in the Bible. Nevertheless, we've got gospel halls. We've got chapels. We've got independent churches. We've got evangelical churches. We've got Baptist churches, Methodist churches, every other kind of thing. And, and it's all desperately and horribly fragmented. So why are you where you are? Have you got convictions as to the truth of why you would be here and not somewhere else? And then when those, when those convictions uh, take a hold of you, you would then have to say, well, uh, there's a friend of mine at work, and uh, he's a Christian, he's a nice brother, uh, he doesn't go to a local assembly. He's, I don't know, let's pick any of them. You know, he's, he, he goes to this particular Baptist church. So uh, he and his wife are going to come over for lunch on Sunday. So I just, well, why doesn't he come and break bread with us in the morning? After all, we're all part of one body. You've been teaching us that. Uh, and the local assembly is body-like. So if there is a Christian and they love the Lord, well... Why don't they just come and break bread with us? Now, don't tell me this isn't a live subject. And if you haven't been wondering about it, you ought to be wondering about it. Because what should our attitude be to these dear believers? They're our brethren and sisters in Christ. We sat around our supper table at home not very long ago. The subject just arose, and amongst ourselves, a few from the local assembly, we just started thinking about the number of Christians we know in the small town where I live. It's only a small place, seven or 8,000 people. And if all the Christians that we know in our town did gather together as one, certainly our hall wouldn't be big enough for them. What do we do? Just accept the fact that that fragmentation exists? Or do we seek, as my burden has been for many, many years, to seek to win these dear believers to the truth of the local assembly. So you're desperately anxious to know, what's our brother going to do next? Are you going to tell us about an open table? Well, you see, when I read my Bible, I find this. Number one, Christians never were and never are in the Bible received to the breaking of bread. They, they are received. The ideal is that a person is saved and baptized and added to a local company of Christians. And in that local company of Christians, they will, they will cleave to the teaching of the Word of God, they will acknowledge the Lordship of Christ, and they will submit to the authority of Scripture. But if a Christian associates himself with a system that is not biblical, Can you see how that his association with that system means that if we as an assembly, you as an assembly, if you receive him, you are associating 
yourselves as a biblical assembly with a non-biblical system. Can you see that? Paul makes the point in 1 Corinthians 10, you see. He says, you can't just eat food that you know that's been dedicated to idols because it's linked with that altar, links it to that idol. If you take that food, you're actually having fellowship with that idol to which it was devoted. You can't just have it in isolation. There's this principle of association with something. So that dear brother, who is a good man, he's a godly man, and and we love him as a brother in Christ, and we can enjoy fellowship on an individual basis at work while we're having our coffee or whatever. But we can't receive him into the local assembly until and unless he's ready to break his association with a system of things which isn't biblical. If he's not prepared to do that, he's not submitting himself to what would be called in Acts chapter 2 as the Apostles' Doctrine. And if he's not doing that, then though we might think of fellowship as having supper together and a coffee together, that isn't biblical fellowship. Biblical fellowship depends on commonality of doctrine. If there isn't commonality of doctrine, there isn't fellowship. They continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and in fellowship and in breaking of bread and in prayers. We are not saying second-class Christian. We're not beating our chest and saying, brethren is best. What we are saying is, if given the distinctive character of a local assembly of Christians, such as what we meet with. If we believe in that distinctive character, and we we are persuaded from the word of God that that's right, then we have no authority, we dare not associate that which is biblical and of the Lord with that which is unbiblical and of man. You're desperately wrong to do that. Is this making sense now? So that dear brother, dear sister... At home, we we would invite them for supper. We would have that dear brother or dear sister in our home, and we would open our Bibles, and we would go through these things. And we would trust that in the goodness of the Lord, they would come to a persuasion that for doctrinal reasons, the way they're gathering at the moment is not scriptural, and that the way to gather is as the Bible teaches. That's a good way of building into the local assembly, Mike, isn't it? It's a good way of strengthening that testimony for God, seeking to win those who are believers in the Lord Jesus and possibly never been taught. See, I think we should draw a distinction. I do, anyway, personally. I draw a distinction between individuals and companies of Christians who have never been taught I draw a distinction between them and believers who have been taught and have rejected it. Believers who have known what's right and perhaps practiced what's right and for whatever reasons they've left and they've gone to support something that's not scriptural. So we would spend time seeking to win believers to the truth of the local assembly. Building not trying to destroy, trying to build. Have you got friends who are believers? At work, at college, in the neighborhood? Do do you just accept the fact that they are associated with things which aren't biblical? Uh, And in any case, should they either ask us or we seek to persuade them, could you give a good account as to why you're in a local assembly? Why is that system with which they are associated, what makes it unbiblical? What, 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 what is it that means that we couldn't collectively have fellowship with them? We've got to be persuaded of the truth ourselves. It's one of the things that we're going to be held accountable for when we stand before Christ. They're all linked. Our walk by faith our love for the people of God and what we're building into the local assembly. And building into the local assembly isn't about simply upholding a system of things or a tradition of things. 
We're only usually ever one generation away from moving between conviction and mere formality. In fact, the assembly I was brought up in in my early years, the old men in that assembly were men whose fathers were contemporary with J.N. Darby. So there weren't many generations between men like J.N. Darby and me being there as a small boy. Those old men, their dads had been contemporary with him. And yet, even so, I can recall my mum telling me that when she first came from, she was brought up in the Anglican Church, the Church of England, the first time she ever came to a teaching meeting in a local assembly, she sat and she listened to the ministry and she thoroughly enjoyed it, thought, well, you know, this is what I've been missing. And there was a dear lady sat next to her, an older lady who was in assembly fellowship, and the older lady said to her, well, did you enjoy that, girl? And she said, I did. I, I thought that was terrific. That's really warmed my soul. Good. Well, do you intend coming next week? Well, well, yes, I'd like to if I can. Well, look, if you're coming next week, be a good girl, wear a hat. Well, mum was of that generation. There was a generation like that, you know, where if somebody older told you to do something, you just did it, you know. So she came the next week, she bought a little hat and she wore it. She was four years in the assembly before she understood there was teaching to support that. Now, that was only a few generations away from this tremendous rediscovering of, of truth that brought men out of the established churches and all that kind of thing. Now, wouldn't it be a desperate thing if conviction about these truths were lost on our watch? If they were lost in our generation? And we could no more explain why we, from the Bible, why we are in the local assembly that meets here at Midland Park or Flushing or anywhere else. Wouldn't it be a shame if we could no more explain that than explain to the other brother or sister why they're wrong? So this building into the local assembly, yes, it's about commitment. Yes, it's about being at the meetings. Yes, it's about studying your Bible so that you've got something to contribute. But it's also about the most precious principle of a local assembly, if I read my Bible aright, and that's unity. In fact, and with this I'll finish for tonight. When you read the Corinthian epistle, and you've read it, I'm sure, they had huge problems, didn't they, really? I mean, they had huge problems. The man committing incest in the meeting. And, and they got men taking each other to court and, and, and there's lawsuits between brethren and, and goodness me, there was all sorts going on. So let's just say, let, somebody said, well, look, you know, there's this assembly. It's in Corinth. Uh, and you have to go down and sort it out. I mean, what, 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 what would you address first? What's the biggest and greatest problem down there in Corinth? And I'm quite sure if I was to answer it, I'd have to say, See that immoral man. Until he's gone, nothing else can improve. Got to sit in judgment on that man. They've got to, be, got to follow godly order and, and he's got to be put out with a view to him repenting and until he's gone, nothing else can be done. Nope, that wasn't the priority. What was Paul's priority when he wrote to Corinth? Brethren, there's schisms among you. There's fault lines. They're not open fractures yet, but they are schisms. They're, they're fault lines in the company. And there's the danger of it fracturing wide open. There's those of you who are saying, I'm of Paul, I'm of Apollos, I'm of Cephas, I'm of Christ. And he says, all the time you're saying things like that. Are you not carnal? You're just behaving like unsafe people. And he says, I, I pray to God that you, that you very quickly be perfectly joined together because if that unity isn't there in Corinth, there's no point sorting the rest out. It's true, isn't it? So perhaps one of the best things we can ever build into the local assembly is the truth of Ephesians chapter 4, that we're to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. They like to make movies about snipers. You know, guys who can kill a man more than a mile range and all this kind of stuff. 
they want to make a movie about snipers, they could go to a lot of assemblies and do that. The people who don't really ever build much into the assembly but complain about a lot of things. There's nothing ever quite right for them. Shouldn't be like this, should be that. Shouldn't be that side, should be there. And, and it does irreparable damage. It really does. It does great damage to the unity of the assembly. I said I'd finish, I will. After I've said this. There's something else that does great damage to the unity of an assembly. And here I am taking my head in my hands. But anyway, I'm saying it as before the Lord. See, a local assembly is governed in a way that nothing else on earth is. We have overseers. They're not greater in status than anybody else in the assembly. They're they're simply our brethren in Christ. But they bear a weight of responsibility that is huge. It's massive. For they have to answer directly to the Lord of the assembly for the well-being of that flock. So that's what the Bible teaches about our government. Our our overseers. And it's perfectly scriptural in its right, uh, according to Acts chapter 15, that, that when there are issues arise, the overseers meet to consider the matter. That's what they did in Acts chapter 15. Now this is the bit where I take my head in my hands. It's when that overseer's meeting is over and the overseer goes back home and Mrs. Overseer begins to pump him for the information. What went on? What were you discussing? What were the decisions? You say, oh, that doesn't happen. Well, if it doesn't happen, thank God it doesn't happen. It does a lot back home. And you see, the way that translates is that, is that if there's an issue which the overseers have to consider and talk about, and then there has to be some announcement to the local assembly about the thing, in the assembly, there are men and women whose their antennae are up. And they can sense immediately, they know immediately who already knew what was just announced. Most, mostly just in body language. So you can sit there and a brother is making the announcement of what was considered by the overseers and one of those dear ladies will be sat there and her whole body language just says, I knew before you did. And it's, it's things as practical and basic as that that destroy the unity of a local assembly. I'm very grateful to my late father. He's been in heaven 25 years now. He used to impress upon myself and my brother, my older brother, he would say, now look, in the, in the home I'm your father. You do as you're told. In the assembly I'm your brother. Relationships are different. The moment you gather as a local assembly, relationships are different. And could I appeal, my dear brethren, please, please, with love in the Lord, could I appeal? If in whichever assembly you represent, you are an overseer or aspire to be an overseer one day, recognize that your dear wife, with whom you quite rightly discuss the domestic affairs of the home, in relation to assembly business, is your sister. I'm thankful to God. If my wife were here, I would still say the same. I am thankful to God for a wife who, when I get in from an overseer's meeting, only asks one question to your coffee. So there's an instance, a real hot potato, a real live issue. The Bible addresses them all of how when we're seeking to build into a local assembly, there's no point remodeling your lounge if the water's pouring into the basement. There really isn't. And the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace is the most essential thing in any local assembly. See that you maintain it. See that you work at it. See that you make sure you're not the one spoiling it. And see that that these dear men who have to bear such grave responsibility before God when they, when they sit and deliberate about something, that when it's announced to the assembly, it comes as news to all. 
There aren't those who knew first. And you'll be surprised at the difference it might make to the sense of cohesiveness and uh, belonging for each saint who is there. Well, I suppose we've covered a lot of ground. It's been a bit scattered, perhaps. But as I sit down and as you go home, just keep in mind, please, that the divine ideal for the body, the building, the bride, it was all wrecked by sin. And in principle, God wants to see all of that restored in the local assembly. And they're the very things that we're going to have to answer for. What, what Cain displayed in chapter 4, his belief and his attitude to his brother and what he built, we're answerable as well. We'll stand before the judgment seat of Christ. Not long now. We'll have to answer for the way we walked. We'll have to answer for our attitude to our brethren. We'll have to answer for what we built into the local assembly. We trust God will bless you.